This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer. Serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. On July 6, 1957, Althea Gibson, a black tennis player raised on the game in Harlem, New York, shook the hand of Queen Elizabeth at center court of the Wimbledon Tennis Championships. The Queen was attending her first Wimbledon match ever, having traditionally remained a faithful fan of horse racing. But today, she made an exception. Only for once, she wasn't the one making history. On this particular day, the world's eyes were squarely on Althea whose victory that sweltering summer afternoon made her the first African-American to win a championship at the renowned tennis tournament. It was a moment that forever changed tennis, even though many in the sport and the world didn't fully acknowledge its significance until many years after Althea's barrier-breaking win. As captured by news cameras, the queen descended from the spectator stands to personally present Althea with her trophy. Shaking hands with the Queen of England was a long way from being forced to sit in the colored section of the bus going into downtown Wilmington, North Carolina, Althea later said. She had indeed come a long way to get to Wimbledon. A child of the streets in Harlem, Althea took her God-given talents on the tennis court on a whirlwind ride to the top of the women's tennis world rankings. That journey would bring her to Wilmington as a young woman, where she got her footing and strengthened her skills with a racket on a backyard tennis court on Orange Street. In many ways, it was in Wilmington that this talented woman first became the legend that would blaze a trail for every black athlete that followed her. But her impact was not just because she was black. She was also a woman whose willingness to attack the game with aggression and skill shredded the still antiquated notion that women didn't belong on the court, even as she and others continuously proved those notions wrong. With every serve, return, and shattered expectation, she proved that she deserved and earned her place in the sports world, an elite club that would for a time cast her out. Althea Gibson's staggering legacy is one that spanned decades, eclipsed stereotypes, and broke barriers. But it's also one that is deeply rooted in the person and the player that she became while here in the Wilmington area. A crucially formative period for an athlete considered by many to be one of the greatest of all time. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, 
and landmark stories of southeastern North Carolina. As always, I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. This week on the show, we're going to look at how Althea Gibson broke racial barriers in the world of tennis and how a childhood spent in Wilmington helped put her on a path to greatness. In this current moment in American history, as the nation looks inward to address systematic racism and better amplify the voices and stories of its black citizens, we wanted to do the same for our local history. So many area residents and historians have worked to make sure that Althea's legacy and impact have not been dimmed by time or overshadowed by more often shared stories in the Wilmington area. However, her achievements still frequently go unheralded. As with all of our episodes, I encourage everyone to use this week's focus on how Althea came from Harlem, made it to North Carolina, and broke into the sports world as a jumping-off point for your own research into her life. Trust me, we can't fit all that Althea meant to her community, her sport, her gender, and her race into one episode. But we can talk about the story that she left behind, one that continues to benefit the Wilmington community and its young athletes today. As always, I'll share with you her story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend. And when it comes to Althea, legend is the operative word. Then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. And this week's guest is Lenny Simpson, the founder of One Love Tennis in Wilmington and one of the lucky people who counted Althea as a mentor and coach. So sit back and settle in for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed as we hit the court to tell the inspiring story of how Althea Gibson served up history in the world of tennis and beyond. Althea Gibson was born far from a tennis court on a small cotton farm in Silver, South Carolina on August 25, 1927. She was the daughter of Annie Bell and Daniel Dush Gibson. Her great-grandfather, January Gibson, had been born into slavery, the product of an enslaved woman and the man who owned her. Two generations later, her father and uncle owned five acres of cotton fields, which they tilled and picked themselves. But with their slice of land not getting any bigger and the Great Depression looming, no matter how hard he worked, Althea's father knew it was never going to be enough for a good life. So the family traded the dusty fields of silver for the concrete jungle of opportunity in Harlem, New York. But Althea didn't have an easy road ahead of her with the relocation. She came of age in the years during and after the Great Depression, when America was still pulling itself back together 
and the poorest communities were scraping by more than ever. Growing up in an inner city meant the normalcy of home and school were more often than not traded for a rough-and-tumble life as a street kid. Once in her teens, Althea spent more of her time on the streets, playing with friends and getting in trouble, than she did in school. In her autobiography, Althea said that she would only go to school long enough for she and her friends to decide what they were really going to do with the rest of their day. Like any kid growing up on the streets, she would have had to learn to be aggressive and tough, two traits that would eventually translate over into her tennis style. As a young woman, she could never let her guard down, whether it was out in the community or at home, where her father constantly pushed her to be the son he always wanted. But a childhood spent roaming the streets also put her in the path of what would soon become her calling. It was on one of those days spent far from a classroom that Althea first came across a paddle tennis court, set up each day on one of the neighborhood streets. She picked up the paddle, hit a few balls back and forth with a friend, and was immediately drawn to the game. Sunrise to sunset, Althea said she owned that court, challenging anyone who dared face her to a game right on the New York asphalt. Soon, she was being introduced at the private Cosmopolitan Tennis Club for African-American players, where her aggressive instincts, something that had never raised an eyebrow on the street, were suddenly out of place in the quieter, more cordial world of tennis. But she traded the paddle for a racket anyway, and found mentors who taught her the true game of lawn tennis, from footwork to stance to serve. Under the tutelage of one of those mentors, Fred Johnson, she won her first match at the 1945 American Tennis Association Championship, an organization founded in 1917 for the black players not yet allowed to participate in segregated leagues. While she was rising fast in the ranks, Althea still bristled at the middle-to-upper-class lifestyle that dominated tennis culture. She may have shown promise on the court to those well-to-do benefactors and mentors, but she still brought her attitude from the streets to the game. She was a young woman torn between two different communities. The tough street world she already knew and the polished tennis world, offering her the opportunity of a lifetime. Luckily, she would soon meet two men who were willing to help her find the balance between her two lives. Doctors Herbert Eaton and Robert Johnson were two physicians with a passion for tennis and a desire to see more people of color, like themselves, represented in the game. They, like so many others, recognized Althea's talent, and more importantly, they had the resources to invest in her future. But they didn't pull punches in telling the then 18-year-old girl that neglecting school would not cut it in the refined world of tennis, so they made her a deal. They would help her hone her skills by allowing her to spend summers 
rigorously training in Lynchburg, Virginia, with Johnson through his program for aspiring black players. Then, she would spend the rest of the year living in Wilmington with Eaton's family and attending school. She arrived in Wilmington in the fall of 1946 and was given the upstairs bedroom in Eaton's home at 1406 Orange Street. Being in Wilmington was a reintroduction to a culture in the South that Althea had been removed from before she could remember. As had been the case with her first impressions of tennis, her arrival in the South was met with a certain culture shock. Segregation was unwavering in Wilmington at the time, something she would have experienced in New York, but certainly never to the rigid degree she saw in North Carolina and Virginia. She attended and graduated from the segregated Williston High School in Wilmington, even though she only lived a few blocks from the white-only New Hanover High School. Although Althea had found support from within the black community to nurture her talent, she and every one of her fellow tennis players and mentors almost certainly felt the immense disregard and outright hate of the outside world, trying to dissuade them from vying for a place in a predominantly white sport. In Wilmington, she could only practice on the court in Eaton's backyard, and was left to learn that her do-as-she-pleases lifestyle, that she lived on the streets in New York, would not cut it here, where young women didn't act out of step with societal expectation. Like all of their charges, Eaton and Johnson taught Althea discipline and etiquette, made her learn to adhere to the rules of tennis and not the rules of the street, and told her to respect authority, even if she had spent her life doing the opposite. While she faced a number of hurdles breaking into tennis, no one could deny that she was built for it. She was tall, lean, and had an eagle eye for the ball. In a PBS documentary produced about Althea's life, former New York mayor and her childhood friend, David Dinkins, said she had an enormous wingspan when she played. You wonder how in the hell anybody could get anything by her, he said with a laugh. In the same documentary, tennis legend Billie Jean King, who was an admirer of Althea's, said she had a resolute confidence in her abilities as an athlete and that served her well in drowning out all the noise. She took no prisoners, King said. Everyone could feel her presence. She was described as both intimidating and graceful, aggressive, but with the form of a dancer. For so many, she was the epitome of what perfection in tennis could be, a dichotomy of skill and fearless instinct that joined as one on the court. Althea herself described her style of play as aggressive, dynamic, and mean. In the civil game of tennis, this would, for much of her career, be off-putting to some. But again, her talent was undeniable. That first summer with Dr. Johnson, she won every championship she played in. And yet, by 1950, 
she was still not permitted to play in the U.S. Nationals at Forest Hills in New York, which was considered to be the pinnacle of tennis in America. But an intense push to allow Althea to become the first person of color allowed entry into the exclusive tournament would be successful, and she made her debut at Forest Hills that September. It was a revolutionary moment for sports. She played defending champion Louise Bruff, and she came out strong, winning the first few sets. But then the weather changed, and a rainstorm like no other interrupted the match. A bolt of lightning even struck down a stone eagle that adorned the Forest Hills Stadium, a violent sign that some took as Althea's presence having angered someone above. The match was halted, with Althea just one game from winning. And when it resumed the following day, she lost. That same month, likely feeling a little bit defeated, Althea began college at Florida A&M University, where she attended on a scholarship. After graduating and fulfilling that promise of education that she swore to Eaton, she focused on climbing back up the ranks starting with a world tour courtesy of the U.S., which was looking to show off some of its tennis talent. Althea hung behind in Europe after the tour and worked her way through a number of notable tournaments, refining the skills that she had been taught and keeping a laser focus on her next goal, Wimbledon. In 1956, she won the French Open and played in a Wimbledon doubles match. But it was in 1957 that Althea entered Wimbledon as the favorite to win the ladies' singles title, a historic prospect that turned the world's attention to the English tournament. In what would become her career-defining match, Althea faced off with Darlene Hard of California, and she won 6-3-6-2, clinching the title and defying what many considered insurmountable odds. The victorious moment was broadcast around the world, from her first serve to her handshake with the Queen. She played a few more matches later that day, but it was that first win that suddenly made her, in the eyes of so many, the pride of America, at least for some. A parade was thrown in her honor, upon returning home to New York. She made the rounds on talk shows and game shows, and seemingly overnight, she'd become a national icon after a decade of inching toward fame, one serve at a time. She went on to again face Louise Bruff, the competitor who beat her after the freak storm at Forest Hills in 1950 at the U.S. Championship in 1957. This time, she came away victorious, securing a championship title in the U.S. and at Wimbledon, ultimately finishing the year as the first African-American to win a Grand Slam title. She repeated both her U.S. and Wimbledon wins the following year, becoming one of the most sought-after athletes in the world. But then she took a step back from tennis not by choice, but by necessity. Tennis was a rich man's sport, 
and winning tournaments didn't translate into big bucks in those days. Today, we know athletes to make millions as they ascend the ranks of their respective sports. But Althea wasn't making that kind of money in the 1950s. On a good day, she was breaking even after paying all of those involved in her success. Even at the top of the sports world, she still found herself struggling financially, something that success had not rescued her from after all those years. As she once famously said, being champion is all well and good, but you can't eat a crown. So Althea refocused again, this time on a diverse career that could bank on her celebrity status. She released several albums as a recording artist. She played tennis matches at Harlem Globetrotter games. And in the 1960s, she even tried her hand at a golf career. She played for several years on major courses and in national tournaments, transitioning her force with a racket to a golf club. But she struggled to get enough sponsorships and invitations to make it a career. But even in this late-stage career shift, she still managed to make history. In 1964, she became the first African-American member of the Ladies Professional Golf Association. By then, however, the nation's fascination with her had waned, especially as she moved farther from tennis. By the 1990s, Althea was almost penniless. She had spent her life committed to a sport that had now turned its back on her. She had exhausted all options and even talked to her friends as if she might take her own life. But her friend and fellow tennis player Angela Buxton wouldn't let that happen. She helped orchestrate a call sent out to tennis organizations around the world, asking players to support one of the most talented and revolutionary players in the sport's history, before it was too late. Within weeks, Althea had received money from multiple countries in multiple currencies, totaling well over a million dollars. With the 11th hour support from a community she thought had forgotten her, Althea was able to live comfortably in New Jersey until her death in 2003. She's buried in New Jersey with her first husband, Will Darbin. Althea's career took her from the cotton field in Silver to the streets of Harlem, the backyard court she trained on in Wilmington, and to countless arenas across the globe. The challenges she faced because of her gender and the color of her skin, they never stopped her. In the truest sense of the word, Althea made history even though her own sports community and the larger world didn't always give her credit for it. For years, and even to some degree still today, people believed that Arthur Ashe, another black tennis player, was the first to win at Wimbledon. But in actuality, he was the first man to do it. And he didn't do it until 18 years after Althea did. She famously sidestepped any talk of the challenges her race played in her career, and even went as far as to say that she didn't see herself 
as a representative of her race. She was playing the game for herself. But even if she didn't acknowledge it, seeing her on the court, playing with her own style and confidence, has inspired generations of athletes to push themselves as Althea pushed herself. The rightful recognition of her legacy would eventually materialize. Today, her profile is immortalized in statues outside the Arthur Ashe Stadium at the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center in New York and another statue in Newark, New Jersey. Her name is emblazoned on numerous tennis courts across the country, including a tennis complex at Wilmington's Empey Park. She has inspired several youth sports programs, including One Love Tennis in Wilmington, and her face even made it on a Wheaties box and a U.S. postage stamp. But it's in the people and the players that Althea's impact can still be felt even after she's gone. In an authorized biography of Althea's life, tennis legend Venus Williams, who became the second black woman to win Wimbledon after Althea, credits her with challenging people to see beyond race on the tennis court. Although some of the challenges that she faced still exist today, it's much easier for all of us who have come after her, Venus wrote. I am grateful to Althea Gibson for having the strength and courage to break through racial barriers in tennis. She knocked down walls, which gave us the freedom to concentrate on the game. Joining me now to talk further about the life and legacy of Althea Gibson is someone who knew her very well, someone who counted her as a coach, as a mentor, and who is also the founder of One Love Tennis here in Wilmington, uh, Mr. Lenny Simpson. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, and thanks so much, Hunter, for having us. Thanks for reaching out to One Love and and doing this. Greatly appreciate it. Well, I, I wanted to tell Althea's story, and I first introduced it on the, the Facebook group that we have for the podcast a couple of months ago as an option for something that we wanted to do this summer. And there was just a swell of support for people wanting to either hear her story or they've heard her name and they want to learn more about her. And so I thought not only did I want to finally do it, but I thought right now would be a great time. Well, Hunter, you couldn't have picked a better time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The timing is superb mm -hmm. with what is going on in our country, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. First of all, with the virus, mm -hmm. how we have now encountered that yep. and the changes that have taken place in all of our lives. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that is happening in our country, unfortunately, the racial tensions mm -hmm. that are going on this this divide between the two races and to now tell the story of Althea Gibson in Wilmington, North Carolina and her life at 1406, but also what she did all over the world and the influence that she had all over the world through the game of tennis and how she used that as a platform, the timing could not be better. So thank you. I'm, I'm happy to do it. And like I said, I, I before we came on, Mike, I told you that I have 
thoroughly enjoyed getting to to learn even more about her. I knew a little bit about her just from working at the newspaper and and a lot of the things that you guys have done here over the years. But it's 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 a really fascinating story. And I want to say before we even start that you and I are sitting on the front porch of 1406 yeah. Orange Street, yeah. uh, where she w- where she lived here in where Wilmington. She lived. She came right up these very steps. <laughs> Set right on this front porch exactly. in the swing, exactly. right where we are doing this podcast Absolutely. today, folks. So this is the real deal. It really is. <laughs> you can even hear the planes going over the house right now. Um, but I want to start, before we jump into talking specifically about Althea's story, um, I want to know how you met her and how she became your coach and mentor. My parents live right next door to Dr. Eaton, right behind the tennis court in the backyard. Okay that we just restored and completed. My mom and dad lived right across the field there. The two properties met each other, my mom and dad's property and Dr. Eaton's property. He had almost five acres here. Now there's probably two and a half Mm -hmm. left that my wife and I purchased Mm -hmm. a year and a half ago that we're restoring this home and the tennis court, bringing it back exactly like it was 65 years ago when I first stepped foot on this property. I came over here and started my tennis career at five years of age. Wow. Now here's how that started. It had nothing to do with tennis. Uh Uh-huh. I basically started playing tennis because of a Coca-Cola. Why is that? Every day you could set your watch with my next door neighbor who was my also my coach, Mr. Nathaniel Jackson. And he was the best in tennis of everybody that played at this court, including the great Althea Gibson. That's how good he was. Uh-huh. Well every day he'd come walking by my house and he'd be dressed he'd be dressed in all white. White shirt, white shorts, white socks, white shoes and his little white hat. And he would come by and I would be up in the oak tree in the front yard of my parents' home. And every day at five o'clock, I'd see him walk down that sidewalk, turn, and he would disappear. And then I'd go in the house, but I'd always come back out to wait for him to come back by again. He would come back by every day with a Coca-Cola in his hand. Well, now listen, Hunter. A five-year-old and a Coca-Cola, and it's hot, and mm-hmm. I'm up in an oak tree. Mm-hmm. See, that intrigues a five-year-old. Yeah, there's a Coca-Cola fountain somewhere that he's the getting that from. <laughs> somewhere he's getting a Coca-Cola from, uh-huh. and I want to know. Well, he kept coming by, and he was a friend of the family. So I finally got up enough nerve and said, Mr. Jackson, where did you get that Coca-Cola from? He said, well, I'll tell you where I got it, got it from, and I'll take you over there. So you can see exactly where it came from, but you gotta get permission from your parents. Well, my mom and dad, man, my dads wanted me to come and play tennis over here, but they knew nothing about tennis. They were both educators. My father was uh, principal of a high school. My mom was a school teacher for 70 years. Oh wow. So they didn't know anything about tennis whatsoever. They never had the opportunity. opportunity even go near a tennis court. They didn't hardly know what a tennis court was, except for over here, okay? So, my mom would not let me come over here. 
she did not want me bothering all the adults that were over here, mostly adults and older kids that were over here at that time. This was known as the Black Country Club. Really? This property? This property. And the reason why, Hunter, is because if you wanted to play tennis or if you needed to go to a recreational area in this town, remember, we're dealing with Jim Crow laws. Mm -hmm in Wilmington, North Carolina, and all over this country. There was nowhere for you to certainly not play tennis on any of these courts in Wilmington. Mm -hmm. Dr. Eaton is the only one in this town of anybody, white, black, green, or blue, that had a private tennis court and a swimming pool on his private property in 1948. How many people do you know in 2020 that have both a private tennis court and a swimming pool next to each other on their private property? Not a gated community. Mm -hmm. This was in 1948. So this was the place for blacks to gather. Professional black men in town, lawyers, doctors, teachers, ministers, that were all successful gathered here. And this is where they kind of met and they played tennis. They had a great time over here. Well, it was beautiful. We're in a residential area, so absolutely. it's it's like a hidden little a hidden little thing. It's like what I call a rose garden, maybe surrounded by thorns. Okay. Yeah. And this rose garden, and this rose is growing, and it's maturing, and these flowers are just coming up, mm-hmm. and it's changing the whole area. It's changing those thorns that maybe are around them. And it's changing the whole area and it's changing everybody that lives here in this area. That's what Dr. Eaton's property did. That's what he and Celeste Eaton did here at 1406. Well, my mom wouldn't let me come over here. So what did I I do as a youngster? I sneak out of the backyard and run across that empty field that Dr. Eaton owned. Mm -hmm. And I would hide under the shrubs, get down on my stomach and look through the bottom of the shrubs. And, and I can remember the first time I came over and slipped over, it was like, it was like magic. Mm-hmm. It was like I'd gone to Disney World. All of these people, African-Americans, all dressed in white, clean, beautiful, white clothing, playing the game of tennis, laughing, having a great time together. And I just took it all in. So every day I'd slip over. Well, my mom finally caught <laughs> Moms tend to Moms do that. Moms have a tendency <laughs> to find out, okay? Yep. Because that's the way the neighborhoods work. As neighborhoods, you looked after everybody's kid in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So it got back to her. And buddy, I got a Quite a spank, to say the least, <laughs> least for disobedience. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, more of this happened, the more spankings I got. And I finally said to my mom, I said, Mom, I really want to go there. I really want to play tennis. They said it was okay. Well, they hadn't said it was okay. You know, but Dr. Eaton knew uh, my family and everything. And so I, I said, well, you may as well just go ahead and spank me because I, I'm, I'm going to go back over there. Mm-hmm. She looked at me for a long time, and I was, like, scared to death. She said to me, she said, you know what, son? You want to go over there that badly? 
to learn how to play tennis, then I'm gonna I'm gonna okay for it for you to go with Mr. Jackson, and you can go. Oh man, <laughs> that was one of the happiest days of my life because I didn't have to worry about getting my beat my backside taken care of every time I disobeyed. Or crawling under shrubs. Or crawling under <laughs> shrubs anymore down there in the heat. Mm -hmm. Looking and gazing at that amazement that was going on, the magic that was occurring inside of that court. Well, I saw Mr. Jackson and Buddy, I couldn't, I couldn't meet him quick enough. Came down out of that oak tree, met him, I said, Mr. Jackson, Mr. Jackson, my mom said I can go. He said, okay, this is great, this is great. So I, he said, I'll meet you tomorrow at five o'clock. You'll be ready to go and we'll walk around to the tennis court. Sure enough, next day. I couldn't sleep that, that whole night. <laughs> it's like Christmas. Next, yes, like Christmas. <laughs> and, and so he meets me and he brings me around to the side gate. And I walked in the gate and he walks me down to the tennis court and everybody's out there. And he introduces me to everyone, the other young boys and girls that were there, all older, mm -hmm. and then to the adults that were there. And the last person he introduced me to was Althea Gibson. And to this very day, I get emotional about this. She looked at me, and he introduced me to her, and she said to me, welcome, champ. What took you so long? And that really, really hit me. Because she never said not one word to me as she saw this little knucklehead boy looking through the shrubs, watching them all that time. She never said a word. And then when I finally got to meet her, she calls me champ, <laughs> and I haven't even hit a ball over the net yet. That's some encouragement right out That's, the gate. That is some encouragement. Now, Hunter, we're talking about from the world champion. Hmm? This is in 57 and 58, you know, early. I mean, I, I, and, and she was coming into the height of her career, actually, in 53. Yeah, this yeah. happened later on to become world champion in 57 and 58. But she was on the rise up as one of the top players in the world, one of the top players in the country, mm -hmm. obviously. For her to say that to me and take the time and spend with me, that meant everything to me. So that is how my tennis career started. And then the Coca-Colas, then I found out how you get a Coca-Cola. <laughs> they so had him here. <laughs> let's not forget, that's the real reason exactly. I started playing tennis. Well, I became the gopher. Okay. I was a little five-year-old, running balls on the court, cleaning mm -hmm. the court, brushing the lines, sweeping the lines. Hey, I had to do all of those kind of things to pay my dues. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I had to go literally to the corner store, right down one half a block, from where we're sitting on this porch. Mm -hmm. And I would pick up and, and get the Coca-Colas for everyone at the court. But the reason why they had Coca-Colas at the court, and the reason why Mr. Jackson always came back with the Coca-Cola, is if you lost a match, six to zero, mm -hmm. in, in, in other words, six love, mm -hmm. 
you had to buy Coca-Colas for everybody at the court. That's hey. the way it was done. Okay. That's how I got my Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. That's that the real story. reason I, love that story. I started playing tennis. What was it like to work with Althea here? I mean, growing up with her and seeing her here. Wow. It was absolutely incredible to see the hard work that she put in, to see how gracious she was and how humble of a woman she was. For her to take the time and give me my first tennis racket. She did? She handed me my first racket because she said, my real name is Lindbergh. Mm-hmm. She said, Lindbergh, well, how are you going to hit a ball? You have a tennis racket? I said, no, I, I don't have a tennis racket. I mean, I'm five. Mm-hmm. She said, well, here, you use this racket. I want to give you this racket. Now, you got to take care of this racket. Oh, yes, 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 yes. So then every day when all the players at the court would get through playing, Dr. Eaton, Mr. Jackson, Althea, all of the other professional men and all the other kids would get through playing and using the court, she and Mr. Jackson would get next to me standing, each on the side of me and me in the middle, mm-hmm. and would in turn teach me and give me instruction of hitting off of a backboard. Now, mm-hmm. for those people that don't know what a backboard is, mm-hmm. it is wood that looks like a wall. Okay. And the ball comes off of that wall and comes back to you. So. That wall never misses, does it? No. No. You got to keep your eye on the ball when you're yeah, in there. Yeah, you really got it. <laughs> they taught me. Side by side, giving me coaching, help when everybody would get through playing and would spend that time with me and taught me on the backboard. I hit off the backboard for two years straight before wow. they even let me hit a ball across the net. That was the kind wow. of discipline and structure that I had to have mm-hmm. to maintain that, that focus. Yeah. And then I finally got a chance to hit across the court and go to my first tournament at eight and uh, ended up winning the tournament in doubles. They sent me for experience. And uh, that's when I got on the, the junior development team with Dr. Johnson mm-hmm. in Lynchburg, Virginia. It was he and Dr. Eaton's whole vision to find the best black athletes that they could find Mm -hmm. that were playing tennis all over the country Mm -hmm. and bring them to one place. And that was Lynchburg, Virginia. Althea had gone Mm -hmm. through that pipeline. Arthur Ashe had gone through that pipeline. So many other great African-American players that were tremendous players. And so that's That's how how it all began. Well, tell me this, I mean, it sounds like that the discipline and the skill and and the game of tennis that Althea learned here, she helped teach to you. Absolutely. Great, great, great point. She just transferred all of that, <laughs> that she'd learned all of those years, the discipline of Dr. Eaton and Celeste Eaton here. Mm-hmm. See, because it was her way, it was their way, or the highway for mm-hmm. Althea. Yeah. When he found her out of the slums of New York City, he and Dr. Johnson, in an ATA tournament. Now, if you don't know what ATA stands for, it's Mm -hmm. the American Tennis Association. And see, that was the black tennis association that we played in the circuit, on the circuit, all over the country. And 
various cities all over because we couldn't play in the white tournaments, mm -hmm. which was the USLTA, which today is the USTA. So history lesson, folks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the ATA is the oldest, second oldest tennis organization in the world. Started in 1916 when black people were playing tennis all over this country through the ATA because that's the only way that they could play the game of tennis. Well, it's important to remember throughout this whole story, and, and I try to underscore that earlier in the episode when I tell her story, that segregation is such a big part of this because, you know, not only was it in society, sports very much so, that was putting black athletes in these these other leagues, these other organizations, because they weren't allowed in these bigger ones. And so when she broke into them, that was why parts of her story, her whole story, are so monumental in 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 the grand scheme of tennis and sports in general. Absolutely. And see, as you said, it's so monumental because the whole country was under Jim Crow law. The whole country was yeah. segregated. Yeah. I mean, blacks had very few... <laughs> freedoms and privileges at all. A matter of fact, let's remember folks, in 1964, when I first played my first US Open at age 15, the Civil Rights Commission had just passed the voting right. We didn't even have the vote until 1964. Yep. Now imagine that. And now we'd been on the circuit playing. Althea had been out there a long time before 1964. Mm -hmm. So you can only imagine the adversities that she went through in the sports world. Not only the sports world, but going to school here mm -hmm. in Wilmington. Exactly. At Williston Junior High, three blocks from here, mm -hmm. right where I went to school and attended school. And, and, and the segregation, when you had a school here at New Hanover High School, two blocks from where Dr. Eaton's house is, but she couldn't go to that school. You guys walked these streets, same streets to same school? Same streets, same sidewalks. So tell me this, before, I, I, I want to talk very specifically about her life here in Wilmington. Before we get there, what did growing up in Harlem, in, in New York, do eventually to her game? I mean, I, I've, the things I've read and, and the things I've heard and even interviews that you've given before, it sounded like it really gave her that... I don't know if aggression is the right word, but that aggression and that that commitment to just attacking the game because it was a harder life living on the streets. Absolutely. No question at all. And you picked the right word. It did make her aggressive. Mm -hmm. But what it did, it gave her grit. Mm. It gave her fortitude. And as in layman terms, it gave her guts. That's what it gave to her. Because see, by being a street kid in Harlem, not having any advantages in life whatsoever, hard life, actually raising herself. Her father was not very much a father to her. And so, you know, he, he would actually box with her. He wanted her to be a boxer. He wanted, he wanted a son, correct? He wanted a son. Yeah. That's really what he wanted. But mm -hmm. when he didn't get a son, he would box with her and he... He wanted her to look at it as if you needed to be able to defend yourself when you're out in the street, mm -hmm. the street light, the tough light. So you needed to defend yourself. And so he, in turn, her life in Harlem 
And then she had an opportunity to come here, and Dr. Eaton and those wanted to give her a life to succeed with his very family at 1406 Orange Street. The chance of a lifetime. It really was. And when she got that opportunity, she began to see what it was like on the other side. Even in a black family on the other side that had means, that had wealth. This is a very wealthy man. Mm -hmm. he, he and his wife, uh, uh, Celeste, they're very wealthy people. Well, they have tennis court in their backyard. <laughs> and a swimming pool. Mm -hmm. And five acres here. Mm -hmm. So she didn't see that. She wasn't used to that. Yeah. So she had no social graces when she first came down here. Matter of fact, when she first lived here, they wouldn't even let her eat with the rest of the family. Really? Because her manners were so bad. She needed etiquette lessons. She had etiquette, <laughs> and that was the responsibility. Listen, if it had not been for Celeste Eaton, mm -hmm. teaching her all of the social graces that she would have to contend with when she got out in the outside world and all over the world, Althea Gibson never would have made it. Yeah. And on top of that, getting her studies done, because see, remember in Harlem, yeah. she didn't even go to school. Now I read a quote where she said uh, <laughs> that she went to school long enough so they could decide where else to go for the day. Exactly. Yeah. Had no formal mm -hmm. real education. Yeah. So they had to start her from a late mm -hmm. 17, 18. Yeah. Going to Wilson Junior High School and then Senior High School, graduating and getting a scholarship to Florida A and M. Yes. Tremendous basketball player, tremendous musician. I could see the musician just because I know she she recorded albums, but I didn't know she played basketball like that. I did see a I did see a picture of her, but I didn't know she was a tremendous player. heck of a player. <laughs> that mean, tall, tall, lean, long arms. <laughs> exactly, and one of the greatest athletes ever. Yep. And you put her on a basketball floor, mm -hmm. hey, it's a natural. Exactly. That that natural athleticism, yeah. uh, you can't deny, regardless can't of where deny. you come from. That's exactly right. So tell me a little bit about what her life would have been like here. She gets to the, this house where we are. Um, she lives with the Eatons. I mean, obviously, again, this is the age of segregation. Jim Crow laws, I mean, she was having to sit in the back of the bus. She was in the colored section of places. I mean, what was her life like here as a young woman not only coming into the South from the North, but also coming into a more refined culture than the streets. It was a very tough adjustment for her. <laughs> You're talking about culture shock? This was a culture shock, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, not only just coming from the North and New York City mm -hmm. to the South with all the segregation and all the Jim Crow laws and ride the back of the bus. She used to catch that same bus to stop right here at the corner in front of the in front of the little store down here and then across the street it'd stop at the corner going out of Wilmington and then it'd stop on the other side going downtown to Wilmington. Riding the back of the bus. Going to the doctor's office was with separate waiting rooms. Segregated schools. Everything was segregated. Eating down at Woolworths. Five and dime, a little corner section about eight by eight, where you could go over and have a little hot dog and a Coca Cola, French fries. And then you look 
25 feet away from me and you see this this counter that was about 75 feet long this beautiful counter with the red stools sitting there and all the white individuals being served and they're eating all the food in the world and the milkshakes and you had to stand over in a little corner to order your food but our money was the same color as the one sitting at that counter and our money was green in that little tiny corner and you might get somebody to come over and wait on you after waiting there for 20-30 minutes just to get a hot dog and a coke those are the kind of things that she had to deal with in the process of changing her life. Those were the adversities, guys. Mm-hmm. But you know what? This woman did it with such grace and dignity. But she wouldn't have been able to do that and handle it that way because it took her quite a while to make that transition. Oh, there were many conversations by Dr. Eaton. Uh-huh. And, I heard she and, went places and, that a woman Celeste. wasn't supposed to and That's do right. things. Pool halls. Yeah. That attitude she brings from the streets was not what they were looking for here. It was not acceptable with Dr. Eaton and Celeste Eaton. They were not going to have it because that's not the way their kids were raised. That's not the way all of us in this area were raised and brought up by our families. You made the right choices in life. She made every wrong choice in life until she got the message. It was going to be their way or the highway. She decided, you know what? This is a pretty good life Mm -hmm. down here. And I'm getting real good at something. So you know what? I think I'm gonna gonna straighten up and give this a try. Yeah. Well, and you know, one thing that I thought was interesting, I I watched the documentary and uh, about her and and you're featured in it and and it was on PBS and, and one thing I thought was of note was that she didn't always talk about the challenges she faced because of racism and because of that systemic racism throughout the country. And I'm curious, why do you think that was? Do you think it was that she really just wanted to focus on being the athlete that she was working to be here in Wilmington and and beyond? That's exactly what her focus was. She was not interested in being a... Hello. Hello, how you doing? Good. She was not focused on being that that black leader mm-hmm. out in the world mm-hmm. her focus was the tennis mm-hmm. world that's what she was really interested in being the best in the world in the tennis and it was not her focus to represent her race mm-hmm. out there necessarily although that was an automatic it was because I mean, the perception is mm-hmm. you don't change this color. Yeah. So anything that you do, obviously, is a representative of your race. But she didn't want to be a spokesperson. Mm-hmm. She didn't. That was not her game plan mm-hmm. to success. Yeah. That's why she never really talked about it that that much. Mm-hmm. She never really talked about the stories of the awful treatment that she got. All her focus was, she took it to the tennis court and said. Here's how I will take care of business in between these lines on the tennis court. See, because, see, out here, there's no Jim Crow laws. True. Hitting a tennis ball, we're on equal ground now. It's mano y mano. And that's the way she proved it 
and 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 sent the message very loud and very clear, but with class across the world. I mean, across the world, it's it was you know that Grand Slam title is is important because that was international. She was taking that message everywhere, everywhere, mm-hmm. and especially Hunter, when you win the most prestigious tournament in the world, Wimbledon, twice in a row, consecutive in wins. a row. <laughs> now so she meant business. The prestige of that alone. So truly, there is no debate mm-hmm. whatsoever that Althea Gibson is truly the Jackie Robinson of tennis. Yeah. Without a doubt, there is no debate no whatsoever. No denying that. No spinning, no anything. As far as I'm concerned, if it had not been for Althea Gibson, let, let me step back even further okay. in history. If it had not been for Dr. Eaton and Dr. Johnson and their vision of seeing this young lady playing in the parks in a tournament, an ATA tournament, the American Tennis Association, Mm -hmm. and their vision right then of talking it over that they needed to find a way to help this young lady. If it had not been for those two men and their vision, there is no Althea. Now, let's take it even a step further. If it were not for Althea, there is no Arthur Ashe. Mm-hmm. There is no Serena and Venus and Sloane Stevens and Madison Keys and Townsend and Coco Golf. I can go on and on. There is no Lenny Simpson in the tennis world. You see, so it's a total dominating, I mean, domino effect of how important she was to the history of all of this. Still, just like her talents, those were undeniable steps forward. Those were undeniable trailblazed. Um, I'm curious, you know, when, when you're playing tennis, obviously you're playing for yourself. You are one person battling another person. Do you think that also kind of contributes to her really wanting to focus on the game? Because it's her. She, it is her out there with a racket doing it for herself. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It was all left up to her. Mm -hmm. She could either blame herself Mm -hmm. or she could either bask in the glory. Mm -hmm. So I think that was very important to her, an individual sport like that, which obviously gave her a lot of Mm self-esteem. Oh, yeah. She felt great about herself, Mm -hmm. of what she was accomplishing, even before she became a world champion. But just what she was accomplishing, the barriers that she was knocking down, the walls that she was knocking down, the perceptions of black people in the world of tennis, the perception of black people everywhere with Jim Crow laws, what she did and what she was doing, it meant meant so daggone much Mm -hmm. to everyone. And I think she really relished that. Even if she didn't talk about it. I mean, even if she didn't talk about it, Mm -hmm. but deep down, it was burning inside. Mm -hmm. That's good. Hey, that's the kind of fire that everyone talked about it being. That's what gave her that that aggression, that skill in the court. That's correct. Um, And a lot of hard work. Let's not forget. Oh, yeah. Now, you can have all the fire in the belly you want (laughs) and and you can want Mm -hmm. and you can show all that aggression. But if you don't have the skills, and if you don't have the work ethics, 
none of that's going to happen. I heard the days of training here on uh, on the court here at 1406. They started early and they went late. Oh, sun up to sun down. Mm-hmm. I mean, I lived over here. My mom didn't have to worry about where I was at all. <laughs> she knew where I was. It was sun up to sun down. Mm-hmm. You, you ate, slept, and drank tennis. That's what you did. Yeah. It was your life 24-7. That's what it took to get good at something. Mm-hmm. And that's where we were. That's how we were all trained. So did you get to work with her after her Wimbledon wins? I mean, and, and, and those those oh, really yeah. successes, did, she, did you get to work with her here? Was it elsewhere? No, I worked with her here when she See? would come back to visit. Okay. She would always come back to visit and spend time here with Dr. Eaton and Celeste and, and Hubert Jr. And the, mm-hmm. and the two daughters and kids. And so I would get to see her all the time when she'd come in and we'd get the workout and she would always evaluate me. Hey, she was tough on the court, buddy. Oh, I bet she was. I can remember when I was 9, 10, 11, 12, it didn't matter. Hey, when I finally got a chance to hit the ball across the net and she'd go out and hit with me, oh, she would deliberately hit me with the ball. (laughs) I, I read something oh, where they were yeah. like, she was not scared of hitting you with the ball oh, to show you the no. power of it. I'll just show you who was who was mm-hmm. in control. That's yeah. what all of that was about. About mm-hmm. To show you no matter how good you get, a, <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the queen. Yeah. And I'm going to let you know it. Bop! <laughs> so, hey, tennis balls hurt too. So uh. hey, hey, listen, I have bruises all over me. <laughs> And I mean, she, hey, but she, she said, hey, listen, this is not personal. No. Lindbergh, you got to get tougher. Mm-hmm. You got to get tougher. That was it. What was it like to see someone who had that, that such life-changing moment for you go to such heights in Wimbledon and in U.S. Open? I mean, and then to see her come back here and work with you. I mean, I imagine that was rewarding even for you. Oh, that was everything. Mm-hmm. For me to have a personal contact, a personal relationship with a young lady that had accomplished so much and that what it meant to everyone in this country, whether you were black or white, you finally had to admit, daggone, you know, I may as well join her. If I don't like her, if I don't think she is who she is, you know? This woman has proven herself yeah. over and over and over under the worst of circumstances. Mm-hmm. So when somebody does that, that's called earning respect. And that's what she did. So she showed us in her own way. Actions speak louder than words. There's nothing that she could have told me on the tennis court. But she showed me and went out and did it of all the hard work, all the work ethics all of keeping herself under control, all of doing it the right way in the classic way with grace and dignity. She showed me that. That was the example. And thank God that I had two unbelievable parents to guide me along when she wasn't there, to help me to make the right choices in life. I was very fortunate. After Althea's just incredible wins, there was that period where it seemed like 
you know, sports had turned her back on her. I mean, she, because of the nature of sports at the time, it wasn't a money-making empire. She had to be resourceful. She had to look to other things besides tennis to make a living. Um, and there goes a period of, it seems like decades, and it was decades, where she wasn't getting her due. I mean, why do you think that happened? Why do you think that there was that period where Althea had gotten such success and so many people had had become attracted to her and everything that she was doing, and then she was kind of cast out in a way? Yes, very true. There's always two sides to a coin, mm-hmm. right? Althea brought a lot of that on herself. Okay. After her playing days, and that there was no money in the game, and then she began to see later on, years and decades later, all the money in the game. All the success that all the other women players were having on the professional ranks, right? And she was 10 times better than any of them. She had to stop playing because there was no one else to beat. <laughs> Literally. It's lonely there at was, the top. Is, there is what was they'd no say. one else to beat and there was no money. So she had to be resourceful, mm-hmm. like you said, find other ways. That's why she became a women's professional golfer. Yep. Now, here's this woman is, is a professional athlete in two sports. And then she became an unbelievable singer, cutting albums to support herself. On all of the all of the top shows that were on TV during that time, the Ed Sullivan Show, uh, uh, I've Got a Secret, all yep. of these shows. But Althea, see, she had, she had this. She became bitter, and understandably, understandably so. Understandably so, absolutely. She became bitter, angry. She had this chip on her shoulder, and see, bitterness will destroy you. And so she never, never was really taken in by the USTA and what had happened since that time at Forest Hills and at Flushing Meadows and when the stadium was built and this facility was built. She was never really included because, first of all, she didn't want to be and she didn't gratiate herself to do that because she was so bitter and she was so angry the way that she had been done and that she had not ever really gotten her due even decades later so there's always two sides of the coin she didn't make it very easy and i showed the documentary of the althea story to some young girls that attend glow academy that we were doing a tennis program for mm-hmm. glow had asked us to bring our One Love Tennis program to Globe. We showed them the documentary because it had rained that day, so we had to have a rainy day playing, right? Yeah, pop-in movie. That's right. But it just wasn't a pop-in movie. This was something that was very powerful. We showed this documentary to the young girls, 40 of them. After we showed it, we noticed total change in the mood of the room. They were quiet. They were angry. Even they were angry because they realized, because we've been teaching them the history now of Althea and what you have right here in your community. World champion, 1406 Orange Street, giving them the history and my relationship. And they realized that, you know, 
That's right. Althea doesn't have anything at all to represent her at the greatest venue in the world. Flushing Meadows, the U.S. Open. They said, Coach, why is that? I explained to him. I said, you have the right to be upset and angry. I've been upset for 65 years to see that she'd never gotten her due. Other players got statues and stadiums named after them and, and all of this at the U.S. Open. I said, then girls, you're in strength in numbers. Then let's do something about it. They looked at me and said, Coach Lenny, we're in the 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. I mean, what, what, what can we do about it? They're not going to listen to us. I said, oh, yes, they will. I said, my good friend is Katrina Adams, who is the CEO, chairman of the board, and the president of the USTA, and she's African-American, and she was a great, great player on the tour. She now is in power. I said, she will listen. They said, well, what can we do? Let's write letters. So those girls wrote letters. We worked on editing those letters every single day. I, I was doing a fundraiser for One Love in February of that year, two years ago. And I had as my guest speaker, Katrina Adams. She didn't know this. We had the girls there and we had 10 of them read their letters to her on the spot. Now see, that was effective. Cause she couldn't run, she couldn't hide. She had to answer those girls of why there wasn't something for Althea Gibson. Had to face down the legacy of Althea. Had to face it down. Now they had all already girls? been working on some things, but who knows how long that would have taken. All these decades had gone by, nothing had really been done. Okay, a lot of talk, but no action. The letters she took back, she was so impressed. She was so moved by those letters. She took them back to her board immediately. They expedited ex very quickly, approved it, and then five months later, there's a statue at the U.S. Open in 2019 in Althea's honor because, partly because of these letters from these girls because they took a stand. A matter of fact, the comment was that I made to the girls, I said, yeah, you're right. They don't even have a hot dog stand named after Althea Gibson. Yep. And the little girl wrote, they don't even have a hot dog stand <laughs> named after Althea Gibson. Hey, and, hey, and Katrina started using it in all of her press conference and everything. And so that really was effective because see now, see because you stand up for something and you do it the right way, and people listened, and we got it done. Now forever, forever, these girls now are a part of history at the US Open. See, they'll take their grandkids and say, you know, you see that statue? They're one of the greatest players ever, an 18-ton statue. One of the biggest that's ever been on that site. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely beautiful. They were recognized last year. Our whole group, okay. One Love, was recognized as being the catalyst that turned the tide in the table to get this statue done and to recognize Althea Gibson. So they are a part of history forever. 
Well, and I think that goes to show 60 years later, more than 60 years later, the representation that Althea brought to the sport, to just broader minds, just seeing her represent, represented, I think that goes to show just what representation does even today. Those girls seeing themselves, seeing that movie, seeing Althea go through all of that, that pushed them to want to better honor her in ways. I mean, you see other ways in which she was honored. A few statues, we have something here, uh, the Althea That's Tennis right. Complex. That's right. But all of that is more recent. You know, it, it, that was, like you mentioned, uh, it's overdue. It's, it's that kind of coming to terms with truly what she meant and what all of that hard work she did, what it did for that generation then and these that have come after. No question. It's a domino effect. That will be everlasting from generation to generation to generation of that representation for the great Althea Gibson. Do you think she's gotten her due? Do you think there's still more recognition oh, to be I done? Still th- I still think that there's more recognition to hopefully come. It's been a long time coming, but I think that there are so many other things that can be done. I think the story needs to be told even further. And the the first documentary that we were in, done by mm-hmm. Rex Miller, who did an outstanding job, very good friend of mine. Something that you can watch uh, through the New Hanover County Library. That's correct. Mm-hmm. See, there is another documentary that's called Althea and Arthur that we're in. Okay. That all of our One Love kids are in right here out of this house that was shown by ESPN, mm-hmm. by the Tennis Channel. It was just shown again by the Tennis Channel just last week. Mm-hmm. They show it continually. Now, there have been probably 10 different documentaries done featuring this house, One Love, and the girls that participated in that letter writing contest. Not contest, but the letter writing uh, that we did. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me this. So, I want to I want to talk a little bit about One Love in, in, in particular because this is a way that you're honoring Althea. Absolutely. Because not only are you doing it at this house, One Love works with children in the community to follow in her footsteps. You know, to use tennis as that way to offer discipline, to offer a future that they might not otherwise see for themselves in the same way that she might not have seen that had people not taken a chance on her. And so, I mean, is One Love in a way honoring her? There's no question about it. There never would have been a One Love if it were not for the legacy of Althea Gibson and telling that story and the legacy of what Dr. Eaton and Dr. Johnson left. See, you must understand, in the throes of history, Dr. Eaton and Dr. Johnson were doing a One Love tennis program 60 years ago. They were. All I'm doing is to come along in my own little way trying to emulate what they did 65 years ago or more than that. That started in the 30s. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I'm just picking up the mantle. I'm just picking up the torch. I just happen to be fortunate enough to do it right on this property where it all started with he and Dr. Johnson. And I will never let that legacy die again on the vine. 
I will never let it, the story be forgotten as long as I am living and hopefully it will be continued by the person that comes in and takes this over and carries it on after I'm long gone and no longer here. So yes, this is why I came up with the vision in 2013 to come back home. And I started looking around and I said, you know, maybe it's time for me to come back home and it's my turn to make a difference in this community for young boys and girls just like Dr. Eaton did, Celeste Eaton, just like Dr. Johnson did, and so was born One Love Tennis to give the opportunity to at-risk young boys and girls to be able to succeed and use the sport of tennis and education. Let's not forget <laughs> what is really important and the backbone of One Love is education. See, because you can hit that little fuzzy tennis ball, but if you don't have anything between the ears, <laughs> you can't you can't go anywhere. Well, that was something they taught Althea. That's you can exactly be what they talented as you can on court, but that's right. there needs to be the balance. There that's needs right. to be the, the double faceted. That's right. That's why she got her degree and she put something between her ears when it came to education, which that was the component that Dr. Eaton and Dr. Johnson, that was the backbone for all of us. So working with children, working with kids in this community, that I imagine is part of your mission to keep her story alive. Because if you teach it to them now, if you're telling it to them at that young age that you first met her, that you got to first have those impressions, uh, I imagine that's a way to keep that story going now that she is gone and one day when you are gone. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Somebody has got to carry it on. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing and setting that table and that foundation right now with these young kids in this community where they live mm -hmm. to have the pride and the hope that they can do something with their lives just like all of us did. And the examples came before you. You just gotta use your opportunity the right way and that's what we are trying to get across to them at a very young age with our One Love Tennis Program and our One Love Family. Well, I have one more question for you. What do you take from Althea and your time with her on that court with you when you are mentoring these kids and coaching these kids? You are now playing that role that she played for you. What do you take from that time you spent with her and, and bring to, to these, new, uh, these new tennis aspiring pros? That's a great question. And I don't know whether anybody has exactly asked me exactly that way. But that's, that's a great way to way you, you put it from that standpoint. What do I now take? Because now I'm in that role and position that Dr. Eaton was in, Dr. Johnson, Althea Gibson, Arthur Rash, my other mentor and coach who I met at Dr. Johnson's at age nine and he was 15 and Dr. Johnson assigned him as the older kid, old school. <laughs> to take care of the younger kid. Guess who he had to take care of? Yeah. That's when my relationship started for the rest of my entire life with the great Arthur Ashe as a role model. 
every time I step out on the court with our One Love kids. I try to teach them that they need to be humble. They need to have faith in Jesus Christ. They need to understand the importance of family because I work off the three F's and faith, family, and friends, true friend. And so that is extremely important of how you carry yourself, the choices that you make in life. That's the role that I get from my days of spending all that time with my great coach and mentor, Althea Gibson, of how she did it and the way that she did it in order to succeed in life and what it takes. Those are lessons she had to learn. They're lessons that she helped teach you. And, you know, as sentimental as it might sound, it's through you that she's still being able to have that impact Right. on kids here in Wilmington. I mean, this wasn't her hometown, but it's something that, it was a place that she became the person and the player she was. And I said that earlier in the episode, that this that time that she spent here is some of the most formative time in your life. And she did it here at this, at this house on this court, and she helped bring some of that to you, and now you're continuing that legacy, so. Absolutely, and as you said, Hunter, the word through in her informative years, her most informative and impressionable years when she was living here and was raised here and lived right upstairs in this house at 1406. Which you're, which you're restoring. Which to we its, are restoring. It's former glory. It's and still a beautiful house. It's a beautiful house. The bones of this house are incredible. And we've had the opportunity and been blessed with so many people that believe in us in this community, that see the vision that we have, see what we're doing, and have stuck by us, and have contributed to this, have supported us, and are still supporting us. It's been an incredible ride. And it started all with you ducking under these bushes back here. That's right. <laughs> Looking, for Looking for a Coca-Cola. Looking so. for a Coca-Cola. Hey, well, uh, well, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I would encourage everyone, as I do with most of our episodes, to use this as a jumping off point to go read more about Althea. Go watch videos of her playing. There's something really mesmerizing about watching, just tennis in general, yes. but watching her and knowing that she, not only she was here in Wilmington, but also what she had to go through to get just to be able to play on that court That's right. around those people in those different cities across the country, across the world. And so I would encourage people to go look at that and to come look at One Love and, and see how you can help or, or be involved or maybe your kids are very interested in tennis and this is a a great way to start out. It's a great way to get them involved. Mm -hmm. It's a great way to get them doing something. Come and join us in our One Love program. Be a part of our One Love family right here at our headquarters at 1406 Orange Street. Help be a part of solving 
the problems that we have with race relations. Don't be the problem. And you can get a good start of exactly what we're doing with our One Love family. Because see, this family is made up of every nationality that there is. And this is the beginning. And this is how you change a community. So now the question that I ask everyone that's listening to this podcast. The question is, well, what are we going to do about it now? No, 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 no. We've been saying that for a long time. Okay? Here's the question that I ask everyone. What are you doing about it on a daily basis? That's the question that I leave with you. Thank you very, very much. Absolutely. And I'll say that just like it was for Althea, there's not race on your tennis court. There's no there's, race out there. There's, there's players and there's <laughs> skill and there's things to be learned. That's right. And uh, that's what you're doing here at uh, 1406. That's the message that we're getting across to each and every one of our parents, our parents, as well as their kids. Well, Lenny, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for sharing your memories hey, about listen, the... listen, thank you so very, very much, Hunter, for reaching out to One Love. And if you need to get in contact with us, our website, go to our website, please. See what we're about and learn about this great history you have right here in your town. Go to our website, one, O-N-E, dash, love, L-O-V-E, dash, tennis, T-E-N-N-I-S, dot org. That's it for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and our look at the life and legacy of Althea Gibson. Thank you so much for joining me. And another special thank you to Lenny Simpson for coming on this week as our guest. Be sure to check back soon for our next episode when we'll turn to another chapter in our local history book. Until then, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each episode, and I share all of my coverage of local history for the Star News. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. If you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can also email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com and don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter which goes out every week in it I include links to all of our new episodes and any supplemental pictures or videos that I uncover in my research all delivered right to your inbox sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com slash newsletters as always you can find a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear on Earth was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing for the show is done by Adam Fish. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed 
by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth.